Hi, everyone, and welcome to another ICM and Next Collaboration podcast. My name is Rahul Costapinto. I'm an intensivist at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and an ESICM Next Committee member. Joining me today is Dr. Joanna Stollings, Medical Intensive Care Unit Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She's also Vice Co-Chair of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's most recent Pain, Agitation, Delirium, Immobility and Sleep Clinical Practice Guideline Committee. We'll be talking about her recent ICM publication today, which is another addition to the very enjoyable Lasting Legacy in Intensive Care Medicine series, entitled Evolution of Sedation Management in the Intensive Care Unit. Joanna, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rahul, for that kind introduction. Uh, Joanna, your paper highlights some of the changes in sedation practices in intensive care units over the past 20 years. What are some of the landmark trials that stand out for you that have led us away from deep sedation as our default management strategy? So some of the biggest ones that stand out to me are J.P. Cress's study that was published in 2000 that essentially showed by doing spontaneous awakening trials every day that we can get people off the ventilator faster. Another big one is Tim Gerard's study, um, the ABC trial, which was published in 2008. Um, and this study compared um, patients just getting spontaneous breathing trials to those getting an SAT before their um, spontaneous breathing trial and showed that by coordinating them, patients spent three or fewer days in the vent, four or fewer days in the ICU, four or fewer days in the hospital, and had a 14% reduction in one-year mortality. Um, Shannon Carson's study that was published in 2006, which um, looked at non-benzodiazepine sedation, so propofol, um, as compared to intermittent dosing of benzodiazepines, and found that if you used uh, propofol, um, that people once again spent less time on the vent. Um, I think another big one to think about is 2009. That was when our first kind of long-term outcome data was coming out. And then the other two I would highlight are MENS and SEDCOM. So MENS was published in 2008, and this was a study that compared lorazepam infusions to dexmedetomidine. So this is really one of the, it was the first study that looked at alpha-2 agonists for sedation in the ICU and showed by using dexmedetomidine um, that patients were more likely to be within one point of their goal, RAS, the Richmond Agitation Sedation um, Scale, and also had, um, or had more delirium and coma-free days. And then SEDCOM, which was published a year later, also showed that dexmedetomidine as compared to um, midazolam infusions um, with dexmedetomidine patients were more likely to be within one point of their goal RAS. That's great. And that leads um, very nicely to my next question, Joanna. So since publication of the, list of the last pain, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep clinical practice guideline in 2018, there have been two large randomized control trials published comparing dexmedetomidine with propofol in usual care. Where do you see the role of dexmedetomidine currently in routine sedation management? So there's two big studies you're referring to. The, the first of those is SPICE-3. So this is by um, Yaya Shahibi and colleagues um, and compared dexmedetomidine to essentially usual care sedation and found no difference in outcomes um, between the two groups. And the second of these um, is MENS2, um, which compared dexmedetomidine to propofol in patients um, that were septic and similarly found no difference between the two groups with regards to mortality or um, any of the other secondary outcomes. 
So since um, I published um, this paper, um, ICM actually has published two very notable papers um, with regards to dexmedetomidine. The first um, is by um, Kim Lewis is the lead author on that, but essentially it's a meta-analysis looking at 77 um, different um, randomized trials evaluating um, dexmedetomidine. Um, and essentially this meta-analysis shows that um, dexmedetomidine can help um, prevent delirium. And secondary too, um, that um, ICM published a rapid practice guideline, um, which essentially recommended to use dexmedetomidine if you prioritize your patients not being delirious over essentially the hypotension or um, the bradycardia that could occur secondary to that. So I think dexmedetomidine is a great first-line agent to consider, but of course there are some caveats to that. Dexmedetomidine is really only ever going to get you light sedation. So if you have a patient um, such as those that maybe like have COVID-19 or a really sick ARDS patient that needs deeper sedation, then you're going to need to consider propofol. And the other caveat I kind of already talked about is that dexmedetomidine is pretty notorious for the bradycardia um, that it causes. So if your patient's bradycardic, that's fine, but if they become hypotensive, so symptomatic with the bradycardia, that's when it becomes problematic. So if that would occur, then once again, you would need to consider an alternative sedative such as propofol. And the last thing to consider is just cost. Dexmedetomidine did um, become generic a few years ago, so it's cheaper than it historically was, but it still can be um, cost prohibitive in certain centers um, over propofol. Thanks, John. I think that's a really excellent summary. Um, you have mentioned uh, COVID and the, I suppose, the re-emergence associated with that of benzodiazepine use for because these patients with severe ARDS have needed deeper sedation uh, to avoid patient ventilator dyssynchrony. Now, we're at a point where we're trying to lighten sedation more often. So how can sedation management be optimised in this particular patient cohort and how important do you think is a bundle-based strategy for this patient cohort? That is a great question. So I think we have to like tell ourselves when we're taking care of these patients that we cannot forget the 20 years of research that we have that show us how important light sedation is and how important it is um, to try to wake these patients up every day. So when we see these patients every day on rounds, then absolutely we have to be asking like, what is this patient's RAS, so the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, or their SAS, their Sedation um, Assessment Scale, um, and what should their target be? So in other words, uh, maybe they did need to initially be deeply sedated because they had such severe um, ARDS, and maybe they had some vent dyssynchrony um, and were very hypoxic, but that needs to be reassessed every day to determine if we can lighten up their sedation. So that's the first big thing. The other big thing with regards to sedation is the type of sedation. So if someone can be lightly sedated, absolutely, um, we can use dexmedetomidine. We can even use um, like intermittent doses of um, analgesic meds if just pain is an issue. But unfortunately, what we found in these patients is quite often they need to be deeply sedated. So that's where you're going to think about propofol as our first line agent. Um, but as you all know, unfortunately, what happens um, with propofol is um, it's in a lipid emulsion. So pa patients can get high 
triglycerides just after a few days um, being on that. So you do have to check those. We checked in our patients every three days um, triglycerides. And if their triglycerides got higher than 800, then we would um, have to switch to benzodiazepine therapy. The same thing, um, they can also be at risk for developing propofol infusion syndrome because they are on such high doses quite often for a long period of time. And because of that, we were also checking creatinine kinase levels in these patients every three days. And if it was higher than 5,000, once again, we would have to switch to benzodiazepine uh, therapy in these patients as well. Um, so that's what I always think about in these patients when I'm rounding on them is we really just can't forget what we've learned over the years. I mean, as we're seeing less of these patients, thankfully, we must um, not let these bad habits essentially seep into what we do every day and still try to use non-benzodiazepine-based sedation. And the second part of your question was about bundle-based therapy. So when I think about bundle-based therapy, I'm thinking about um, the isoliberation bundle or the ABCDF bundle. So once again, in COVID patients, uh, thinking about this every single day as we see these patients. So the A standing for assess, preventing, and treating pain. Um, so we know that COVID patients, um, they have or they're going to have pain, especially um, if they're on the ventilator. They notoriously have a lot of neuropathic pain too. So once again, assessing these patients using the tools um, that are validated, such as a numeric rating scale, if they can um, tell you about pain, or uh, the behavioral pain scale, or the CPOT, the critical care pain observational tool, and those that are not, and then treating that um, in these patients every day. The letter B stands for both spontaneous awakening trials and breathing trials. So once again, every single day, determining if it is safe to do a spontaneous awakening trial and spontaneous breathing trial in these patients. The letter C stands for choice of sedation, which we've already talked about. The letter D is for delirium, so assessing, preventing, and treating that. So once again, COVID invades the brain, so it really um, can be deliriogenic in itself, in addition to all the things we um, stereotypically think about in ICU patients. Um, so really, um, assessing these patients every day with one of the two validated tools, whether it be the CAM-ICU or the ICDSC. Um, so assessing these patients at our institution, we do this every four hours, and then doing everything that we can um, to prevent um, delirium. So um, I like to teach the mnemonic Dr. Dre. Um, so we're, the first DR stands for disease remediation. So what diseases are we concerned that cause um, patients to be delirious? So sepsis, COPD. We also obviously think about COVID. And then drug removal. So stopping benzodiazepines, waking people up every day, not giving them anticholinergics, trying to minimize steroids. Obviously, we have to use steroids in COVID patients, but using the smallest dose for the shortest period of time. And then lastly, the letter E, thinking about the environment. So um, if patients have hearing aids, making sure those are in, making sure they have on eyeglasses, um, and then also making sure we do everything we can to normalize their sleep-wake cycle. The letter E stands for early mobility. So it can be difficult um, because we're trying to isolate these patients, obviously, but we like to call it the horseshoe where um, the patient can even like mobilize um, around their bed um, if, if possible. So don't forget early mobility in these patients. And then lastly, the family, doing everything we can to get the family involved. We did, um, we're very proactive here at Vanderbilt about um, getting the family in to see the patients um, for two hours every day. And um, they did have to sit outside the door, but it's so, 
um, important for um, family members and with regards to patient and well-being and the family well-being to be able to see them every day. And we know this particular bundle has now been studied in over 25,000 patients and decreases mortality, um, decreases time on the vent, decreases delirium, coma, um, transfer being transferred to a facility and the use of restraints and actually costs too. So we just can't forget, like I said um, before, how important this bundle is. And we want to really be thinking about this on our patients every day. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for sharing how you utilize the ABCDF bundle in, in your institution. Looking ahead now, um, what areas of sedation research do you think hold promise in changing our practice over the next few years? I think one big one that um, has to be discussed is inhaled um, anesthetics. Um, so there was a phase three um, study that was published recently um, in both Germany and Slovenia that showed that by using inhaled isoflurane, um, that patients were extubated faster and they also um, had a shorter time um, to wake up as well. So right now on um, the INSPIRE ICU study, um, patients are being randomized um, to, into that study, um, which is looking at um, inhaled isoflurane fluorine as compared to propofol. Um, so I just think that's a super interesting area that's very promising and I can't wait to see the results of that study. The second biggest area that I think about, maybe this is partially because I'm a pharmacist, is precision medicine. So in other words, when I say that, I mean like pharmacogenomic variations um, in patients. So for example, like if a patient had a certain like um, cytochrome 2AC allele, then they might be need higher doses of dexmedetomidine um, to actually be adequately sedated. And that comes into play with really all the different sedatives that we use in the ICU. So I really think if we knew about these different pharmacogenomic um, variants in our patients that we really could adequately um, sedate our patients and really use the most appropriate medication. Great. Thanks so much, Joanna. That's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Um, but thank you for um, coming on the program and, and providing a really succinct summary of many things that we've learned and studied over the last 20 years in, in sedation management and a, and a small look into the future as well. So thanks once again, Joanna. Thank you.